Good morning, everyone. Uh, before we begin this morning, let's open in prayer. Father, as we come before your throne to hear your words, to hear your truth resonate in our hearts and in our souls, Father, I pray that you would make your word alive to us through the working of your Holy Spirit, that we might glorify you in our thoughts, words, and deeds. Lead us and guide us in these moments. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Last week, we looked at the word Christian, and we saw that it meant something along the lines of being a little Christ, emulating his character in our lives, or belonging to him. And I made the statement as we begin this entire series that we are going to see a radical difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. Their hopes and dreams are radically different. Their goals are radically different. Love is radically different between those two groups. In fact, that division between the believer and unbeliever is the one division that goes through death itself. That separation, that difference, that distinction. And so as we go through this series on this radical difference between Christian and non-Christian, and how does the Christian then respond and live in a world that both groups occupy, both groups drive the same streets, both groups shop at the same stores, uh, you know, watch TV together. I mean, we do everything, it seems like, together, except maybe Sunday morning church. That kind of is a clear division between the two groups, the Christian and the non-Christian. So as we go through this, and especially last week, we talked about the word Christian itself, and I hope that you had some fruitful discussions, perhaps on the way home from church or throughout the week, about Pastor Tim saying the word Christian, being a noun in Scripture, should not be used as an adjective today, like a Christian book or a Christian business or Christian music. I know that it, it created some discussion for us as well in our family, and it was a good, healthy discussion because it helps us define the terms when we use them. It is important to know what the words mean when we evangelize and talk to the world about the gospel. We have to know what we're talking about and how we define it. I think the easiest way to then describe something other than being a Christian fill-in-the-blank is to use terminology that Scripture uses to describe something. And I think St. Augustine said it best when he said, omnia ad gloriam de referendum est. Omnia ad gloriam de referendum est. Now, Augustine was an early church theologian. He was a pastor and a teacher and a preacher in um, northern Africa. There were no countries at that time really there. Egypt had already fallen into disrepair. It was around 300 to 400 A.D. Uh, and he is probably considered one of the most important authors and Christian leaders up until the time of the Reformation. So for almost a thousand years, Augustine and his two books primarily Confessions and City of God were masterpieces. In fact, they are masterpieces today. I have read both, obviously not in Latin, in English. In fact, omni ad gloriam de referendum est is like one of four Latin phrases I know. Don't ask for any more. That's all I know. But 
Omnia ad gloriam de referendum est, when Augustine said that, he summarized how we are to define music, books, entertainment, politics, um, family life, work, countries. He defined it all in that simple phrase. Can we at least all agree on that? So, well, I know, I know, because the next slide actually gives it away what he means by that. Translated, it means refer all things to the glory of God. Omnia ad gloriam de referendum est means refer all things to the glory of God. So in his mind, he would continually preach this message, does it glorify God? That's the question. Instead of applying a title to something, Christian music, and, and that sort of ends the discussion, oh, we've already labeled it, it's Christian. If we ask the question, does it glorify God, all of a sudden we have to now take what God says and evaluate whatever we're talking about in light of what God has said. We don't put a label on it. We question it. We evaluate it. We discuss it. We reason. We pray. We study. We listen. We learn. We evaluate it. And that's exactly what the early church did, especially in Acts 17. I've mentioned it many times before. Paul comes into the city of Berea, and he starts preaching the gospel, and the Jews there who knew the Old Testament listened to Paul, and what they did is they went back to Scripture and see, is this exactly what Scripture says? Paul, this is a brand new message. We have not heard this before. We better search Scripture to find it out. And so they went to God's Word, and they evaluated Paul's message in light of God's Word. Same thing that Augustine said. If you want to know whether or not something is Christian, stop using the label and use the question, does it glorify God? Does it glorify God? Does it glorify God? In Romans chapter 1, and this is the first verse we're going to be looking at, in Romans chapter 1, Paul does a wonderful job describing the differences between a believer and an unbeliever, a Christian and a non-Christian. Someone who has God as their loving father and someone who has God as an enemy. And the entire chapter is devoted to this dynamic that we live in a world where there is evil and wickedness and people who deny the fact that God truly is who he says he is, according to God's word. And in Romans chapter 1, he gives us a negative view of glorifying God. And I find that sometimes it is helpful to understand and look at a negative side of things to understand the positive side of things. So we're going to look at glorifying God negatively, what it's like not to glorify God, and in doing that, we'll start to then see how to glorify God and how to answer that question, whether or not we believe something to be Christian, and answer the question, does it glorify God? Does it glorify God? And in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 21, we're only going to look at a few verses here. Paul says, in uh, Romans 1, starting in verse 21, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. Now he's talking about the unbeliever, the one who rejects God, the one who knows there is a God but in his heart has rejected Him because he does not want to submit to God as he describes himself in God's Word. He says, although they knew Him, they know that God exists, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. That's the first clue. They did two negative things. They did not glorify him as God, and they did not thank him. Now, God's glory basically is 
the whole sum of God's perfection, and I guess I skipped that slide, just to help us understand what it means, God's glory. It's the sum, it's the total of his perfection. So you think something of God's perfection, add everything to that, that is God, that is his glory. In the Old Testament, it was visibly seen in what was called the Shekinah glory, that is the visible expression of just pure light. And I don't know how that looked or how that felt, but we see examples of it in the Old Testament. We have Moses, who saw just the backside of God, came down from the mountain during the Exodus time, and people were afraid of Moses because his face, his entire body, just radiated God's holiness in a brilliant light. And so it's the sum total of all of God's perfections of who God is, who he says he is, and what he has done and what he has promised. So when you think of the total of who God is, that is his glory. That is his manifestational beauty and perfection in all that he is and all that he's done and all that he's promised. And we're told negatively these people did not glorify him as God. They denied him and they did not give him thanks. They didn't acknowledge God's sovereignty in their lives. They did not acknowledge that God is the one who gave us the beauty of the sunlight, that God is the one who gave us the beauty of the breeze, that he's the one who brings the rain and the wind, that he's the one that brings life and he's the one that takes it. He's the one that provides for our tables. He provides the table. And for someone who knows that, for someone who recognizes that, it is a life of thanksgiving. Not just one day a week, or one, I mean one day a year, and not just at mealtimes, but every single moment. I had a, a friend who, uh, not really a friend, someone I knew, who lived in South Africa. He was a missionary there, and I had an opportunity to meet him once, and we did a few things with the pastor that I was uh, with at the time. And I remember how weird it was getting in a car with this guy. Because he would get in the car, sit down, put his seatbelt on, and say, okay, let's pray. And I'm like, all right, well, I don't know where the food is, but sure, let's pray. I'm never going to say, no, we can't pray. So we prayed. Before we got out of the car in the parking lot, he said, okay, let's pray. Um, all right, let's pray. The guy prayed all the time. Not as a bad thing, but really it was not what I was expecting. It was very different in my culture. And eventually, I kind of caught on to it because every time he prayed, he prayed the same thing. Not that that's wrong. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to go out into the world and be witnesses and missionaries. Thank you. It was that simple. Thank you for allowing us to be missionaries today. May I have an opportunity to share your truth and word. It was that every single time that he made any kind of movement in the world, he prayed. And he prayed with thanksgiving in his heart because he thanked God. Thank you for allowing us to have a car. Thank you for letting us arrive safe. Thank you for allowing us going into the store and getting what we needed. Please protect us on the way home. And, and it became shocking at first. But it then became something very normal when you were with him. His life was a life of thanksgiving. He constantly went before God and thanked him. Now, I'm not saying we have to emulate that because if anyone knows me, if we've ever gotten into a car together, how many times have I said, let's stop and pray and give thanks? I haven't. That's to my fault. It's not that I'm not thankful, but he used that every single time he ventured out of the house 
four or five times a trip, he'd say, okay, let's pray. Let's thank God for what he's done so far and ask him to do more in the lives of others. He lived a life very practically and very pointedly on what it's like to glorify God, constantly going before God to thank him. And I think that is a healthy thing. Maybe not to pray every five minutes, but it's a healthy, well, we are, oh, I shouldn't say that. We are to pray continuously and without ceasing. But it doesn't mean we have to fold our hands and close our eyes and bow our head every time we get in and out of the car. But it does mean we have to have a spirit and an attitude of constant communion with God, and that breeds thanksgiving in the heart of the believer. The unbeliever doesn't even acknowledge God, certainly doesn't thank him. Certainly doesn't thank him. He goes, Paul goes on in this verse, verse 21 even, and says, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So their mind and their heart was turned from God. Their mind stopped thinking about the majesty and beauty and greatness of God, and their heart had no compassion towards God. Instead, their mind raced to sinful projects, sinful passions, sinful pastimes, and their heart was gripped by worry and fear, anxiety, self-righteousness, and a host of other non-humble created things in the person's heart. In fact, it, Paul says it was clear foolishness, foolishness. And in fact, in 20, verse 22, he moves on and says, although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God what would they exchange for the glory of the immortal God, the sum of all of God's perfection? What did they substitute for something, someone that is so beyond perfect? They substituted God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. They worshipped idols. They worshipped idols. They exchanged the immortal, invisible, holy, trice God for stuff that was man-made, carved out of wood, stone, pictures, images, statues, temples, made to their own glory or the glory of other humans or birds, animals, and reptiles. Why would you ever want to exchange the perfect for something man-made? I don't know. But the unbeliever, the non-Christian, the non-follower of Christ, those that do not belong to Christ, they don't value his beauty. They don't value his work upon the cross. They don't value the perfection of his life. They would rather have that which is imperfect but maybe familiar to them. You see, when they look at Christ, and the rest of Scripture attests to this, when they hear about Christ and look to him, Christ himself says there's a division that happens because darkness does not want to see light. Darkness hides from light. Sin hides from the truth. It tries to deny that there's a truth. It tries to change the truth. It tweaks it in such a way that it no longer is convicting. I have an easy solution on how to avoid 
the stated posted limits of speed on roads. When I see a speed limit sign, I look the other way. And all of a sudden, I don't know, what speed limit sign? I'm looking over there. Now, I don't advise you if I'm driving on the road to look the other way. Keep your eyes front and center. But when you see that speed limit sign, what does it invoke? Ah, I got to pay attention to it. I really have to obey it. It is a good and right thing. And I make fun of it all the time. I know that. But it is a good and right thing. The sinner, the one who does not know God, who has exchanged God for something that is man-made, refuses to look at a truth, refuses to look at God because he figures, if I can ignore it, it won't happen. It's not applicable to me. I don't have to obey it. And so they exchange God for a reptile. They worship reptiles and idols and statutes and, and, and things made in our image. And if that is your God, I have pity on you. Because Isaiah says it many times. You can yell at a stone idol all you want. It'll never answer you back. It'll never raise a finger to help you. Because you created it. It is less powerful than the person who created it. Wow. And he continues and just finishes here. Uh, let me just read verse 24 and 25. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degradation of their bodies and one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and served created things rather than the Creator who was forever praised. Amen. That is the opposite of glorifying God, substituting something or someone else in the place of God. When God is not the object of your affection and your devotion, when God is not the object of your worship and your thanksgiving, when He is not the object of your life and the all in all of your life, you are not glorifying God. You are substituting Him for something else. And whatever you substitute, family, it's not going to satisfy. Money, it's not going to satisfy. Health, it's not going to satisfy. Beauty, it's not going to satisfy. Education, it's not going to satisfy. It's not going to satisfy. It's going to promise the world, but it will deliver nothing but disappointment. Not so with God. God not only promises hope and peace, but He delivers on it every single time. Because He's God and not a man-made idol. Glorifying God is worshiping and thanking the one true God, first and foremost. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul summarizes it this way, an all-encompassing verse for our entire life. And if this is your life verse or if you don't even have a life verse, you can just make this your life verse because there probably is not a better life verse than this one. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, he says, so whether you eat or drink, okay, common things, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, 
Do it all for the glory of God. That's exactly what Augustine picked up on. Omnia ad glorium de referendum est. Refer all things to the glory of God. Doesn't matter whether you're eating or drinking, whatever you do. Doesn't matter if you're studying, you're going to work. Doesn't matter if you're retired. Doesn't matter if you have a hobby. Doesn't matter if you're watching TV or listening to music. Doesn't matter. Whatever you're doing, whatever you're doing, it all has to point to am I thinking and living in a way that this activity glorifies God. And I'll tell you, you start thinking that way, and you start living that way, and if you're like me, all of a sudden, every single little activity is important. It doesn't matter if you're putting the groceries away, bringing them in from the car into the refrigerator or the cabinets. That little activity, which we often think is just a mindless activity, it can be an amazing moment where you are declaring God's glory because every step of the way you can be thankful. Lord, wow, this is amazing. I have to make two, three trips or more. That is only by your goodness and your grace that I'm able to do that. You have provided beyond what I need beyond what I need. And you have given me a wonderful ability to taste different foods. And you have given us the beauty of technology that keeps things fresh and safe. Thank you, Lord, for that diversity of food and that freshness of food that you've provided. All of a sudden, a mundane activity that the kids drag their feet to go out to the car and bring groceries in and do, now becomes a moment where you glorify God. And that separates you from the neighbor who doesn't think one bit about God and what God has provided in their life when they bring their groceries in. It doesn't make you holier than them. It doesn't make you more special than them. Because the object of your worship and the object of your excitement is God. God and Him alone. You see how any activity that you can ask, that is a rightful activity, you know, like I've said, you can't go rob banks for God's glory. That's not how it works. If it's a sin, it's still a sin, even if you're trying to think of God's glory. But those mundane activities of our lives can be filled with meaning. See, it's not a Christian activity to bring your groceries in from the car into the house. There's nothing Christian or unchristian about it. But you can live in such a way in that mundane activity to bring God glory. And I would challenge you, not here and now raising your hand, but I would challenge you to find an activity that you do throughout the day where you cannot have your eyes focused on God. Either in thanksgiving or in praise and worship. Because if there is an activity that you can say, hey, I can do this without God, or you can do them with God too. You have to change. You have to think. It's your heart and your mind that need to be tuned into that great question. How do I live for the glory of God? How does this activity glorify God? How does that activity glorify God? 
And it's a meaningful exercise to put a question to the activity instead of a label. Just don't call it a Christian activity. Oh, it's Christian. No, no, no. Use that moment to actually think, how, Lord, are you glorified? Nine times out of ten, it's going to be a matter of our own heart and our own mind. That's what has to change. Not the activity, but our attitude. Our attitude in that activity must change. If we are to do all things, whether we eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Refer all things to God's glory. Uh, in John chapter nine, 8, in John chapter 8, uh, Jesus is having a moment where he's having a dialogue with some Pharisees, and the Pharisees, of course, are no friends of Jesus because Jesus is pointing them to the truth about God, not a religious system of obedience, but a system of worship and love and forgiveness and mercy that Jesus Christ has to remind them is part of God's nature. And they were all saying that you're amassing all these disciples because you want to be famous. And Jesus has to return with the answer, I'm not doing this for my own glory. I am not seeking my own glory, my own importance. And that is crucial in our living for God's glory is that we're not trying to amass pats on the back and thank you letters in the mail to us. That's not why we're living the Christian life. I'm not praying and thanking God. I'm not worshiping God. I'm not living my life for God's glory so that I would receive the accolades and praise. Anything that we do and, and other people benefit from is a good thing. But we don't do it for the praise of others, for the glory of others, for the pat on the back, for the uh, appreciation certificate. We do it so that God's name might be known and seen through our actions. Yeah, they, they may recognize the kind deed to begin with, and they may say, hey, thank you for doing that. That's, that, that was awesome. I, I didn't expect anyone to do that for me. Thank you. So that is a beautiful opportunity where you can acknowledge, hey, I'm glad I was able to help, but really the inspiration behind this is I wanted to honor God, and I wanted to show you love, kindness, and compassion. Because God has shown that to me. I know that that will surprise every single person that you respond to that way. That'll, that'll, what? You don't want the praise, the glory, the honor, the pat on the back, the recognition, the statue, the plaque in your name? No, 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 no. I want you to recognize this moment as I was faithful to doing what God had called me to do. And it's because of his work in my life that I was able to do this work in your life. It's all him, not me. And Jesus, time and time again, reminded the people around him, I'm not seeking my own glory. I'm not looking to make a name for myself. If there ever was anyone that ever lived that did deserve name recognition, it was Jesus Christ. He was fully God and fully man, perfect embodiment of the full glory of God himself because he was God is God, and forever shall be God. But even he, demonstrating to us, we point all the thanks and accolades to God. We don't make our name great, we make his name great. His name is above every other name. 
And it is our duty and our responsibility, our privilege, to make his name known to the world around us. Even Jesus did that. Not only that, but Abraham had a beautiful example for us. All through the book of Genesis, Abraham, even though he was a true man and had true failings, he was a man of faith. He believed God's promises, so much so that in Romans chapter 4, Paul says that his faith-focused living is a cause for God's glory. He said, yet he did not waver, this is Abraham, yet Abraham did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God. And what was God's promise to Abraham? Simple is that he would make his family a great nation. Even though he had no child and his wife was well past childbearing years. No hope. No kids. So they tried to solve it humanly through basically a concubine. And that has caused nothing but heartache for Israel ever since. That's the division between Arabs and Israelites. And I don't think that's going to change until the Lord returns. But Abraham, in the end, believed God's promise. And it tells us in Romans, but, his strength, but he was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. When all of this transpired, Abraham realized it was not my effort. It was not Sarah. It was not the circumstances. It was God who divinely brought a miracle to place in our lives and a great nation Jesus came from his lineage, his family. What, I, I can't think of a greater lineage and heritage than the Messiah being born through your family descendants. Abraham saw the promise, did not see it fulfilled, but saw the promise and believed God. And God looked at that belief and said, that glorifies me. That acknowledges trust and dependence that I will carry it through. And God did. Abraham's belief, his faith, your faith in the promises yet fulfilled that Jesus will return brings God glory because it acknowledges your dependence upon him. Plain and simple. And lastly, in John chapter 15, uh, Jesus says very clearly, this is to my Father's glory. Okay, so it's basically Jesus saying, this is how God is glorified. Listen to the answer that Jesus gives. That you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So Jesus says, you want to know how to glorify God? I'll give it to you in two simple steps. You bear much fruit. And in bearing much fruit, secondly, you prove that you're my disciples. Notice Jesus doesn't say, if you raise your hand and say you're a Christian, you're going to glorify God. It's not that simple. It's not that easy. You have to bear fruit. What does bearing fruit mean? It, well, first of all, it's not like I can grow a plant and keep a plant alive and see fruit actually happen from a plant. That's never happened in my life. But I know the idea. When a fruit tree is nurtured and taken care of with skill, that fruit tree develops fruit over time. And over time, that fruit becomes, with the right season and the right weather, just 
beautifully sweet or tart, if that's, if it's, you know, lemon, lime, that kind of stuff. It just becomes what it should be. It bears fruit. And so Jesus says, if you want to glorify God, this is how to do it, that you bear fruit. Now, how does a Christian bear fruit? What is Christian fruit? To kind of phrase that in a negative way, instead of how do you glorify God in a way that bears fruit? Well, turn to Galatians 6, and you don't have to do that now, but Galatians tells us what the fruit of the Spirit is. And it's those characteristics, and that's not an exhaustive list. That's just Paul saying, here are some things you need to think about. You need to be patient. You need to be loving and merciful and kind and generous. These things that God has said is part of our character now that we worship Him and no longer idols. Now that we are in a different kingdom than the kingdom of darkness, we're in the kingdom of light. Mercy, tenderness, love, compassion are not just code words for us. They're life principles on how we treat others and how we evaluate ourselves. And he says, that proves you're my disciple. Not a name tag. That doesn't prove you're a disciple. Attending church doesn't you know, prove you're a disciple. No, no, no. Volunteering doesn't prove you're a disciple. Giving doesn't prove you're a disciple. Bearing fruit proves you're a disciple. And yes, that volunteering and giving and serving, that, that's part of that. But there's a lot of people, and Matthew chapter 24 tells us there are a lot of people on that last day of God's judgment who are going to say, I did this, I did that, I did this, I did that. And Jesus will look at them and say, well, I never knew you. It doesn't matter what you do. Your heart and your mind are what God is after, not just your actions. But Jesus says your actions speak volumes. It really identifies your true character, especially during a time when action is challenging, when giving and serving and loving and being patient is hard. That's when your true character really shines through. And Jesus says that's the character that brings my Father glory and proves you are my disciple. So, as we think about our take-home thought, question for the week, I'd like us, instead of focusing on whether or not something is Christian in our life, that we would focus on whether or not I glorify God in this. Does it glorify God? Does it show the world around me the fruit of my relationship with God and the fact that He is the object of my heart's desire? Not my own self-pleasure and not my own self-fame, but is He more important than those other things? I think it is helpful to get into the habit of asking the question, does this glorify God? Because you have to really think, and you have to tear it apart, and you have to search Scripture, and you have to think and pray and study. It is so much better than just slapping a label on it and never having to think about it again. Because what happens is, I'm not picking on Christian music per se, but it's just a really easy thing to say, 
If the radio station we define as, well, that's a Christian radio station, we can set it and then forget it. And whatever's on is on, and it's Christian. Instead, if you ask the question, does this glorify God, then it doesn't matter what song comes on the radio on what station. Your mind is actively thinking and your heart is actively pursuing, does this glorify God? Does it glorify God? And you might find that you end up turning the radio off a lot more than before. Not a bad thing. You can listen to the Bible. What an awesome thing. Or you can listen to really good music that definitely elevates God in those words and in that music. Let's pray. Father, it is hard living in this world to focus our attention upon You and what pleases You and what glorifies You and what brings fruit in our life. But Father, help us. We are so distracted by everything. Help us, Lord, to really ask the question day in and day out in all of our activities, does this glorify You? And how can I glorify You in this mundane activity? Let us be people of thanksgiving. Let us be people who have our hearts and minds focused on You to bring You glory and You honor. May the world around us know that we are Your disciples because of our love for one another and the fruit of our relationship. In Jesus' name, all of God's